Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, August 28, 2018, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our special guest this evening is Jeff Nixa, who is a shamanic practitioner and the founder of Great Plains Guide Company, also known as Great Plains Shamanic Programs, offering an array of shamanic healing programs, including individual counseling, counseling educational programs, outdoor retreats, and wilderness trips. Within a week of self-publishing his book in 2016, it jumped to Amazon's number one hot new release position, The Lost Art of Heart Navigation, a modern shaman's field manual, collects all the basic information, teachings, and exercises that Jeff uses in his shamanic counseling work and teaching programs. Jeff began walking the shamanic heart path in 2009 after experiencing a life-changing vision quest in northern Michigan. Jeff's healing career has spanned 30-plus years as a university campus minister, hospital chaplain, massage therapist, and shamanic teacher and practitioner. He's writing a companion novel to this book, and he posts commentaries on his blog, which is urban-shamanism.org, and his website is greatplainsguide.net. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy, Jada, and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. And you can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk if you want to. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here, and you'll get our weekly show notices if you choose to have those notifications. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. It's not always on your birthday. If you want a stage two interpretation of that chart, please order at least three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So first up this evening, it is Anastasia with her fascinating starseed news. Well, hello, hello. I have missed all of you so much. It's great to be back. It is great to be back. Yes, I know. Great Mm -hmm. to get away and get together, but then great to get back, and I'm sure happy that Mm -hmm. we're back. I missed everybody. Well, we've had a geomagnetic storm while you all were away or, you know, just in the last few days, actually. 
but before we spoke the last time, Earth's magnetic field is finally quieting. Uh, almost 48 hours after a surprisingly strong geomagnetic storm sparked auroras seen from the Arctic Circle all the way down to the continental U.S. Now Earth is passing through a stream of high-speed solar wind, and there is a 40% chance of renewed minor storms today. Today's August 28th. And as a result of this storm, electricity was discovered to be flowing through the soil of Norway. Now, when a geomagnetic storm erupts, most people naturally think to the sky. You know, they look at the sky. They're watching for auroras. But during this past strong G3-class geomagnetic storm that began only two days ago, there was action underfoot as well. Probes buried in the ground in Norway detected strong currents of electricity moving through the soil. That's wow. That's a really strong storm. Yes. And there is a potentially hazardous asteroid that's due to come past the Earth, very close, 500-foot rock. It's coming by next week. Yep, 100 feet in diameter, excuse me, 500 feet in diameter is coming next week. And the giant rock is called 2016 NF23. It's moving towards our corner of the solar system at around 20,000 miles an hour, which is faster than many rockets. It's on track to pass nearest to our planet the 29th of August. Actually, that's not next week. That's just the day after. That's tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Goodness sakes, tomorrow. And the asteroid will come close enough for NASA scientists to place the object on the space agency's potentially hazardous asteroid watch list. And um, it's expected to pass, now get this, within 0.03 astronomical units from Earth. That's about 3 million miles. That is really close. And for comparison, you guys, the sun is 93 million miles away. Now, near-Earth objects or asteroids must come within 4.6 million miles of the Earth to be classified as potentially hazardous. And again, this one is 0.03377. Wow. Now, some objects larger than one or two kilometers in a diameter could cause global consequences, according to NASA. So they're going to be watching that tomorrow, not next week, tomorrow. And there was a magnitude 6.3 earthquake off the coast of Oregon that is warning of a Cascadia subduction zone slippage. A magnetic, um, excuse me, a magnitude 6.3 earthquake struck off the coast of Oregon last week. It was on a Wednesday. The quake occurred 188 miles west of the town of Brandon. It started to spark fears that the Cascadia subduction zone could slip, causing a major apocalyptic tsunami. The quake was recorded at a depth of about 10 kilometers. There was no tsunami wa- uh, warning issued for that, but people as far away as Portland reported feeling this timbler. No injuries or damages were reported from that. Now, all seems well and quiet on the West Coast, but scientists are still warning that this Cascadia subduction zone could cause a major event if if the Juan de Fuca Ocean Plate, which goes under the North American Continental Plate, causes a slip in an expected 9.0 earthquake. Well, anyway, so much for prognostication. That's what they're saying. And there was a shallow 6.4 magnitude quake that struck off of Indonesia's West Timor. I hope I said that right. 
the quake was uh, 6.4 on the Richter scale. It struck the island, uh, let's see, uh, today, this morning. And uh, now just hours before the earthquake, they had another magnitude, uh, 4.7 magnitude, that hit the north side of the island. Now there were no reports of damage or casualties, but earlier this month, 436 people were confirmed dead and more than 236 were severely injured in a 6.9 quake that rocked the neighboring Indonesian island of Lombok. So there's that ring of fire. And uh, in Iran, surprisingly, they had a shallow 5.9 quake that killed about two people and injured about 241 others. And we always seem to be going back to Papua New Guinea. The volcano has erupted again. Thousands of villagers are forced to flee Papua New Guinea's Manam Island after their volcano erupted. They say that about 2,000 of the island's 9,000 people had to be evacuated to safer ground on Saturday. The natural disaster began early in the morning. The ash falls were so dense that sunlight was blocked for hours and trees broke under the weight of the ash. Wow. And another volcano, Mount Etna in Italy, is spewing uh, ash and lava as it roars back, roars back into action. The volcano is the most active one in Europe. It initially woke up in late July, but it has sprung into further action last Thursday. Uh, chunks of flaming lava as high as 500 feet have shot into the air almost constantly. Whew, what a sight that would be. And Alaska had an earthquake, uh, magnitude 6. It occurred not far uh, from the coast of Alaska. It was reported by um, Russian news agencies, actually. They said that several earthquakes have rocked a remote chain of Alaska islands in the Pacific Ocean this month. The quake took place two days after other strong tremors of a magnitude 6.2 hit a, hit a chain of uh, uh, islands, and uh, actually it was the Aleutian Islands. And prior to that, just a couple of weeks ago, there was yet another magnitude 6.4 that struck in a, in a nearby region. So Alaska is experiencing some um, sequential quakes right now. Well, it's really hot where I am, and I don't know about the rest of you, but it is boiling outside. And as as it may happen, the 2019 Farmer's Almanac that was published yesterday, and with it comes the Almanac's yearly winter predictions. We are right at the end of August. We're going to be into September. It will be no time at all before there will be pumpkins and the leaves will fall off the trees, and then we're facing winter all over again. <clears throat> And um, what the Farmer's Almanac is saying is that there is a very long, cold, and snow-filled winter ahead. Oh, please don't shoot the messenger. Besides, I'm only telling you what the Farmer's Almanac has said. (laughs) Um, They say that they stand by their forecast and their mysterious formula, which which has predicted most of the winter storms uh, over the years. Last year, they said they were very accurate about the winter as well as their predictions for this summer's steamy hot conditions. Now, utilizing its mathematical and astronomical formula that was developed way back in 1818, they're telling us that the winter of 2018 and 2019 will feature, quote, Arctic air, blustery, bitter winds, sharp drops in temperatures, and widespread snow showers and squalls, 
with a particularly nasty snowstorm predicted for, get this, they've even got the days down, March 20th to the 23rd. They're telling us that snow will begin in December and wintry conditions will delay the onset of spring into late March. Yikes. Another bad tomato growing season. A late spring means bad tomatoes, but there it is. Kind of what happened this year. Got a late start with spring and tomato crops in my region have not been very good. Well, speaking of winter and the end of August... Jackson Hole Ski Resort in Wyoming gets its first glimpse of winter. Yesterday, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort saw its first glimpse of the winter season. This Wyoming ski area received several inches of snow at the top of the mountain, leaving resort employees fully bundled in winter jackets and snow goggles. Weather reports for yesterday predicted that there would be snow totals up to 8 inches in the mountains into early this morning. I didn't check on that and see what happened, but that's what they predicted. And I'm sure you all have heard about the Hawaii tropical storm, and they got up to three feet of rain. Well, again, in Taiwan, a low-pressure system brought torrential rain and flooding to parts of Taiwan in the last few days. They got up to three feet of rain in 24 hours. As many as 116 people were injured, and 6,000 people were evacuated. And more snow in August in Austria and Germany. They are having snow there. Temperatures have dropped up to 15 degrees from one day to another into the zero uh, degree temperature range. And in the Alps, they have had snowfall as well, heavy snowfall. On the higher slopes in the Alps this very weekend, this past weekend, uh, they say that they had up to 15 inches of snow. So, wow, already getting a head start. Now, here's a fascinating story about the state of Kansas. They have discovered a city, a lost city. They call it Etzanoa in Kansas. Have you all heard of that? This was a surprise to me. Maybe some Uh -uh. of you know about it. Ah, Well, fascinating stuff. They say that in 2013, scholars at UC Berkeley revisited a series of maps and texts that were written in 1601 by Spanish conquistadors about a failed expedition into the Great Plains region of the U.S. in their search for gold and treasure. Well, instead of finding gold and treasure, the explorers found a massive settlement of nearly 2,000 grass huts with an estimated 20,000 occupants. Now, there were other translations of this story, and they say that these translations have muddled uh, the exact site of the city. Uh, the conquistadors wrote about it, but the maps on it were vague. They did make maps, however, and they labeled the area uh, that I just told you about as at Zanoa. And uh, with further study, these Berkeley researchers were able to interpret these conquistadors' accounts and the maps that came with it with greater accuracy. They had really plowed themselves into it and were able to locate this place. Now, the place the Wichita State University archaeology professor and his team set out to scour in 2015 were fields just outside of Arkansas City, Kansas. And for as long as farmers have worked the land surrounding the nearby Walnut River, there have been tales of spectacular artifacts 
ranging from arrowheads to pottery, being churned up in the earth. So according to the freshly now, freshly translated accounts that were given by the Spanish explorers, explorers, they have decided that Etzanoa may possibly have been the largest settlement in North America in the early 1600s. Details about this settlement included the presence of massive beehive grass huts laid out in clusters and separated by garden plots containing crops of corn, beans, squash, and pumpkins. Now, the conquistadors, the soldiers, counted approximately 2,000 houses in the five miles that the Spaniards explored. The circumference of each of the round grass and wood houses was approximately 70 to 80 feet, just a little hut, and each house was inhabited by an estimated 10 people. This is according to the conquistadors that saw the village or the city. And they figured that the total population was estimated to be at about 20,000 people. So researchers from Wichita State University uncovered stone tools, weapons, and other evidence of these ancient Wichita people. And to further support the, the old accounts given back in 1601, they have also retrieved Spanish artifacts, such as arrested horseshoe nail bullets and cannon shot fired during an ambush. The, the Spaniards attacked these people, by the way. Well, anyway, uh, as for what happened to the city, archaeologists believe it likely fell victim to European disease and warfare. And by the early 18th century, when French explorers visited the region, there was nothing of Etzanoa left. It was crazed to the ground. But now they're back on the site, uncovering this city and what's left of it, piecing together a fascinating history of what they said was the largest city uh, in early America. Fascinating story. They have pictures of these grass huts, and uh, wow, it's amazing. A hidden, lost, undiscovered, long-forgotten city is now being unearthed as well. And um, also in China... They have unearthed an enormous pyramid, and it has been discovered in a 4,300-year-old lost city, yet another lost city. And this lost city in China hosted human sacrifices, they say, and was once one of the largest settlements in the world 4,300 years ago. This is an astonishing find that has revealed that the newly excavated steppe pyramid is at least, at least, they have to dig deeper to find out exactly how high it's going to be, but so far, it's 230 feet high. It covers a staggering 24 acres at its base. They have named the city Shemael, and they say that it flourished for 500 years across a 988-acre region surrounding the pyramid, again, making it one of the largest cities in the world fascinating stuff. I'm As I read about these uh, news articles and all the things that archaeology has uncovered, I'm reminding, reminded by Lavendar's prophecy so many years ago. I don't remember how long. It's been quite a while now when she said we were entering a time when many secrets would be uncovered, archaeological and, uh, and otherwise. And if that has not come true, my goodness, if I had time to compile all the things that they've uncovered since she made that prediction, I, it would be a fascinating thing. It'd take me probably a month to do it. But she was absolutely right, and, and it's really an exciting time. The quote for this week, it's uh, given to us by Blaise Pascal. Now, who's that? Well, Blaise Pascal lived in 1669. He said this, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully 
as when they do it from religious conviction. Mm. Wow. Wow. Powerful truth. Long ago. Still still holds true. Sure All right. Are. Well, it's great to be back with you. And from my heart to each one of you, much love. Have a beautiful week, everyone. And we'll get back together next week. So that's Absolutely. good. Absolutely. See you all then. <laughs> okay, Anastasia, thanks so much for bringing us the Starseed News. My Fascinating pleasure. things. Thanks a lot. And we'll talk to you next week. So uh, right now, at this time, um, I'm going to open up the microphones, and I see Lavendar is back. She was having some phone issues, but let me just see. Push the button. Make sure you're really there. Are you there, Lavendar? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So well, I'm glad the phone fairies decided to give you phone service tonight. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, well, we have Jeff with us here. Jeff, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I'm here. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, well, Lavendar is going to lead it off. So All right. Take it away. Take it away, Lavendar. Well, Jeff, I'm so glad that you're our guest tonight. I wanted to ask you if you would give us a little bio about yourself uh, how you started out being a shaman. I, I see that you studied law for many years, and then you were in ministry work. So just just educate us on who you are. Yeah, thank you. I always get in trouble with interviews because this takes half the show, so I'm going to cut it real short. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, uh, out of college, I went to law school. Not a good match because I wasn't clear on my heart, which is about what all my work is about. And in the process of trying to figure out what to do, met my wife, who was in a traditional ministry role, in a Catholic parish in um, Portland, Oregon. And there was something about that that just really intrigued me. Uh, and and I, looking back, it wasn't so much the religious role as it was the spiritual care and uh, connection to the heart that was involved. So long story short, I completely retooled myself right out of law school into a more traditional ministry um, role and uh, spent the next 20 years approximately in healthcare as a board-certified um, hospital chaplain working with patients and uh, hospice, extended care, and so forth. And uh, it was great work. It was very fulfilling, very challenging, but there was still something missing uh, for me. I, I didn't know what that was. I was happy to have work and um, seemed to be doing good things to help people. And But something was missing, and it wasn't until years later um, when I did a, a, a traditional wilderness vision quest, a shamanic vision quest, um, that uh, I realized what was missing was a connection to earth, nature, um, having that at the heart of my spirituality, of my approach to helping people and so forth. And I had never, frankly, heard about shamanic work. I didn't know anything about it. I uh, would just sort of fell into it, or, of course, was probably more led into it. And I, again, retooled myself um, over about seven years of uh, study, with two powerful healers, uh, apprenticeship programs, traveling, South America, uh, Native American uh, communities. And over time began seeing my own clients, doing my own programs, my own teaching. And uh, here I am. I've uh, written a book about this work. Um, the core of what I do is called Fire Talks. It's a shamanic counseling sessions. And I'm uh, happy to share more about that if you wish. So I hope yes, that answers yes, your question. Let me ask you, when did you have your awakening? What year was it? It was 2009. It was, uh, I think, in August. 
And uh, one of my clients was actually uh, one of my intervening roles. I didn't mention I was a, a, a massage therapist working in the healthcare as well as my own practice. And one day, one of my clients was getting off the massage table in my office, and I said, "So, what are you doing for the weekend?" And she said, "Well, I'm going to go up to Dowagic, Michigan, and meet with a uh, a shaman." And I said, "A shaman? You mean like a medicine man?" And she said, "Well, yeah, he's a he's a psychotherapist actually, and uh, has Cherokee uh, Matisse background, and that's all I needed. I didn't know anything about this guy, but wanted to meet him, and I did." And he uh, was very kind. We spent an evening together in his wooded compound. And at the end of that conversation, he said to me, you know, you might benefit from doing a vision quest, again, which I knew little about, but he was leading one that summer. And so I uh, signed up for that. It was a week-long program in the, on a, an island in northern uh, Lake Michigan. And at the end of that quest alone, two days and nights of fasting out on a beach, um, had a vision, which for me was essentially a single word, which was simplify, simplify my life, which had gotten completely out of hand with important but um, not essential activities like many of us. And that was the beginning for me. I threw myself into study because I felt how powerful that was. And again, So let me ask you, what happened right after December 20th of 2012? Because I feel like this that you went on another journey in 2013 that really took you to where you are today? Boy, I wish I could answer that easily, Lavendar. I don't have a quick recollection of what I was doing on those dates. Okay. Because I, I feel like that you're really on a on an evolutionary spiral, in it, and I think that something happened at that period of time. You might look back later and, and see what I was referring to. Thank you. Do you have any stories that you can tell us about some of the experiences that you've had with people doing the shamanistic work? Is there ways that you can uh, tell us about maybe some of the spirit animals or things that people see or experience during one of these retreats? Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, if you're interested in spirit animals, I'll just pick one that comes to me. It was actually the same year that I did my own first vision quest. And one of the uh, individuals on the program with us, it was a group of about 12 of us who were going out alone for solo questing on this uh, island. It's a national park. And uh, this individual, uh, his name was Sam, is a transgender individual who had recently uh, had his surgery and so forth. And he, for his whole life, had been deathly afraid of snakes. And he knew it was kind of an irrational fear, garter snakes and so on, but, but nonetheless he was terrified. And so he was very hesitant to go out on this island and spend two whole days alone. And uh, our teacher uh, assured him that in that location and in this climate and so forth, there are no snakes on the island. It's a very small, sandy island and so forth. So re repeated reassurances that of all the things he might have to worry about, rain and insects and so on, snakes was not one of them. Well, guess what happened? So he goes out there and creates his vision quest circle, sits down for two days and two nights, and the first evening a snake came right into his um, into his circle and didn't hurt him. He just sat there, just sat there looking at him. This went on for hours, and um, I had, you know, shamanic encounters back and forth. And what did he do when this happened? Pardon? 
What did he do when this happened? Well, at first he, he was, of course, very frightened, but, but he understood that, that things that can happen during that period are, you know, you, you put yourself in a place of prayer and you set your intent to have what is necessary come to you at that time. So he understood, even though he was frightened, that there was something important. So he stayed put. And the snake, of course, in shamanic and many indigenous traditions is the sign and symbol of transformation, of shedding one's skin, of uh, new life after what appears to be a death, of a completely new relationship with one's body and so forth. So he came back from that uh, profoundly encouraged and feeling supported, and, um, and not just in a sort of emotional friendship way, but in a deeply sacred way, that he was not alone and um, and so that's one that wasn't a traditional shamanic journey with drumming and so forth, but it was certainly a shamanic interaction with uh, so-called spirits of nature in the form of a snake. Did you ever go down to Peru in, in your in your travels? Yes, uh, like many, I've gone down to Peru. I went to the Iquitos area. To uh, there was a or is an annual international Amazonian shamanism conference that I was attending with a small group of people from. My community, and then after uh, in the Iquitos area, learning about plant medicine, ayahuasca, so forth, we got to meet many, many local, regional, and international shamans who'd come down there for that. And then afterwards, it continued. I stayed for another few weeks, went into the Andes Mountains and uh, outside of Cusco um, to learn more about the uh, the mountain sort of spirituality and shamanism there. And, of course, visited Machu Picchu while I was in the area. Did you also go up to Bolivia to Lake Titicaca? Yes, actually. I'd done that some years earlier uh, with my wife and my two children, yes. So tell us some of the places that you've that you've traveled to. Oh, boy. Well, uh, every country in Europe, literally, when I was in college, I had a year rail pass and was just doing the backpacking sort of hippie thing. Uh, but it was uh, a great time adventure and uh enjoyment alone with my backpack um, uh, as far north as the Arctic Circle in Norway and as far south uh, east as Istanbul and Turkey. It's in Israel, um, Greece, and so on. More recently, though, um, uh, South America, Bolivia, as you mentioned, Peru, um, was up in Canada just last summer. I was invited to assist at a Cree uh, Sundance ceremony, a week-long uh, affair with the Cree community up there. It was a huge privilege to be invited, observe, be a part of the people, and learn what I could there. I've made multiple trips out to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the Lakota, Oglala Lakota people, as many of your listeners know, in South Dakota, to, uh, first of all, just learn, just keep my mouth shut and learn and watch and observe. And then more recently, I've been invited back for more interactions. And I take small groups of volunteers out there for uh, exchange work. We do volunteer work, and in exchange we meet with elders from the Oglala Lakota people and learn their stories and uh, their wisdom for us. So those so are a few examples. what state do you live in, Jeff? I live in Indiana right now, in South Bend, Indiana, north So do Central. you have a, a retreat place where people come to Indi- Indiana to do work with you? When I do big group things, I need to rent space. Um, I actually live in the inner city 
um, <laughs> which which is actually part of my uh, medicine. I've come to learn. I, I call my programs there urban shamanism. But I have a little where I do my one-on-one work. It is actually in my backyard in the inner city. I have a small cabin that I built that I call the Hermitage, which I uh, copied the name from Thomas Merton's little monastic retreat at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. And it's a very simple rustic cabin that I built out of recycled materials, but it's perfect. It's perfect for the work I do. We sit on the ground, we have ceremony together, and have these fire talk sessions. So that's sort of the day-to-day core of what I do when I'm not doing um, retreats or uh, travel programs and so forth. Why do you think the growing interest in shamanism today is is really speeding up? What what do you think is happening with people and their knowledge of shamanism? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think, consciously or not, people are recognizing that something is terribly out of balance, um, obviously, with our relationship with nature and the living earth, but also with their own hearts. You know, it's not like... Um, we lack churches and uh, and opportunities for spiritual leadership and spiritual growth and energy work. That's that's not the problem. The problem is many of those do not take people downward into a journey of transformation. And so you get all this busy activity. Uh, my joke, but somewhat serious. I, my wife and I were both in traditional ministry roles for decades, and I would come home at the end of the day exhausted, say from hospital work and all the drama and challenges there and my wife might say something like uh, say uh, our friends the stoners um, they're going to uh, be leading a habitat for humanity rebuild this weekend you want to join them and I was like that is the last thing I want to do I'm exhausted but that's sort of the 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 American form of of being spiritual is to just do stuff you know run around and, and you know try to help people of course but but there's no depth it, it, and it requires nothing of the individual on the inside and there's a subtle, I think, kind of judgment that these other people need my help, and and on it goes. So shamanic work is not that. It is an intentional connection with one's, first of all, one's own heart, soul, spiritual self, and taking a hard look, frankly, at what's going on and what's not going on there. I write about this in my book, and understanding how we create a good amount of our own suffering, just by the way our minds work, our judgments, our illusions, and so forth. So I think uh, the interest in shamanic work that people, whether they're consciously aware of what they're looking for or not, it it's, uh, invites them in. And, of course, I, I believe that the whole um, web of life itself has an intelligence and an ability to draw us in. You know, the earth, if anything, is highly capable of rebalancing itself. And, you know, many of us believe that's exactly what's going on in the, in the world today. And it can look like the end of everything, <laughs> Or it can just be, as I mentioned, snakes, you know, a rebirth. So it's not going to be easy. But I think a big part of that is uh, is uh, nature herself um, trying to give us another chance to get it right in terms of our relationship with, with the living earth and our own hearts. When you started going into shamanism, what kind of reaction did you get from your friends and family and prior colleagues? What happened... <laughs> In the, in the ministry field, did they approach you with positive energy or did they ha- were they skeptical? To be honest, at first I was very quiet about it. I was kind of like a person who was 
afraid to come out of the closet, so to speak, with my true identity, and especially in the role I had as a very traditional Roman Catholic lay hospital chaplain, you know. So I, of course, I, I shared with a few people who were like-minded and understood and would support me and, and very much did not share it with a lot of other people. To this day, I find it difficult for me um, in just a general social setting, you know, where I'll be at a party or something I'm invited to and someone will walk up with a drink and say, so, Jeff, what do you do? And, boy, is there a moment there where I'm like, well, <laughs> do I just say it like it is? I'm a shamanic practitioner and see where the cards fall or more likely what I do is uh, just sort of ease into it and tell people, well, I do counseling work. And, you know, people are such poor listeners. Half the time that ends it right there. Oh, okay, see you later. But uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I, I've been through this before when I left law. You know, my parents, you know, bust their hearts, thought I was crazy. All that work, all that school, all that tuition, the loans, and to walk away from that and a successful potential career to do to follow my heart, so to speak, made no sense. And I experienced that identical dynamic every time I've made a shift, whether it was from law into ministry, ministry into uh, body work and massage therapy some years later, and now shamanic work. And, and all I can say about that is I've never regretted any of those changes. I've never looked back once. It all works out, and it doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of anxiety and uncertainty, especially financially. My chaplaincy career, I was a you know, 20-year, basically tenured uh, person with a pension and benefits and everything else, and we had small children, and to walk away from that is no, is no joke. It's, it's serious, and, it's, it's, um, and it was hard, but, but my wife, bless her heart, she didn't understand or was not personally interested in the work I do, but she understood my sincerity, and I think she could see how important it was to me. And that could have been a very uh, difficult time in our marriage, but it was more like, well, if you think you can do this, you've got my support, and that's all I need in my life is just slack <laughs> to follow my heart and trust that uh, I'm being supported and I'm 58, and to this day, I've never regretted that. So, does she does she join you in your shamanic work? She does not. Although, in her ways, my wife at the moment is in Chicago. She's uh, doing a uh, Doctor of Ministry degree at the Chicago Theological Union, and she just called me, knowing I was going to do the show, and says, "I hope it goes well." And by the way, I, I, I was just approached at this conference. My wife is a musician, by the way, a singer, and she and I was asked to sing a Native American. Um, song of praise um for this group this this big conference and uh you know it's her little way of of, of saying guess what there's synchronicities going on here on her end too so she'll send me articles and so forth about things related to shamanism that she runs into or perhaps native american issues and uh so we we're making a go you know we're different people but there's a, a deep i think trust and respect there that it has meant everything so well that's wonderful yeah. What is the core teaching or approach of the shamanistic heart path? Yeah, okay. So that phrase, um, the path of the heart, I need to credit fully to my first teacher, C. Michael Smith. He's a Ph.D. psychologist, um, psychotherapist, and a Jung scholar. And um, he uh, is the great brain and intellect behind all this. I simply was one of his apprentices who who had a skill for uh, 
translating complex ideas and uh, practices into something that you know a person could pick up a book at Barnes and Noble understand all this stuff. So his it's his phrase to describe these traditions that, um, especially the shamanic traditions that are path based, which means it's not about studying a sacred book, mastering a certain ceremony or a practice or taking a certain medication or anything. You know, it's it's not an event based uh, approach to transformation and enlightenment. It understands that the human soul is a dynamic, evolving thing. So it's going to be a process. It is not a fast process, and you can't always control it. It's the nature of the beast. So it kind of states, even in its phrase name, uh, Path of the Heart, that this is your, you're stepping onto a journey here, and it's, it's not just like taking a workshop <laughs> or, or you know, getting your certification in, uh, in Tai Chi or something. It's, it's, it's a commitment for life. It's a way of living. Yes. So the path of the heart is essentially the the classic archetypal hero or heroine's journey motif of of feeling some kind of call in your life that even if things are going fine and there's no crisis that you feel a certain restlessness and that something something is shifting and you may not be seeking it or even thinking you need it but nonetheless uh it's it's inevitable and inexorable and you you sort of can't ignore it and and you begin to make a shift toward whatever is drawing you forward a new relationship a new course of study and so forth and in this path it involves a leaving of what is familiar and in my case a more obvious conventional roles like hospital chaplain or lawyer and entering an unknown, uncertain place. And all you know is that that's where you're supposed to go, but you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, you don't know how it's going to work out or, or where it's going to end up. But there's a authenticity to it, a um, compelling invitation, kind of like when you look at someone across the room and your eyes meet, and it's like, oh, my God, I need to go meet this person. You don't even know why, but there's an attraction. It's like that. So you follow this day by day, and things unfold and opportunities arise and helpers come into your path. And then inevitably, in this archetypal pattern, there are great difficulties. Because in moving forward... So what forward, is the best part and the hardest part about following the heart path of shamanism? Well, the best path is it's, it's joy. I, uh, for example, when I'm doing fire talks with people, I charge people for my time, but frankly, I would do it for nothing because I love it. And I, I often do my meetings in the evening because that's when I seem to be most uh, in tuned and aligned to spiritual cycles in my day and my life. And I tell people often, I could sit here till three in the morning with you and I would forget to eat and drink and go to the bathroom because I am completely loving what I'm doing here, helping you in a way that I wish I would have had earlier in my life. So the best thing is simply the joy, I would say. And it doesn't mean emotional happiness all the time, right? It just means a deep, grounded sense that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. The hardest um, part. Hardest part um, is, I suppose, the uncertainty. I tend to be kind of an anxious person. And uh, some of the biggest anxieties for me have involved some of the bigger programs I do. Like I lead a Vision Quest program in the desert of southwest Texas, which I just love, but it's expensive to rent the land. It's difficult to um, get, get people lined up and, uh, and all the preparation and so forth. So there's always some tension. Is, is this program going to go? Is it not going to go? I've got a lot at stake financially and my schedule and taking time off and the travel, that sort of thing, which always 
always seems to work its way out one way or another. But the programmatic side of this, and this is all my choice. I don't have to do it this way, but I could never just do one thing at a time. So I have many uh, modes of doing this work from workshops, seminars, these one-on-one counseling programs, the book I wrote. I have a blog of stories and commentaries I do from the inner city and so forth. So, so where is this place in Texas? There is a small mercury mining ghost town called Terlingua, Texas, that some of your listeners may have heard about. And it's right just a, just a half hour from the Rio Grande River in an area that Texas recall, refers to as the Big Bend region. It's that sort of first hook in the Rio Grande River as you come southeast from El Paso. And it's a relatively desolate area that many Texans have actually not been to. There are no big cities there. There are no major highways but it is drop-dead gorgeous. And I'm a guy from the north. I knew nothing about deserts being from Minnesota. And there's a big national park out there called Big Bend National Park, which is filled with outdoor adventure people, the Rio Grande River with paddle sport people, but just the desert itself. And all the archetypal uh, meanings of the desert throughout human history and how humans have encountered the sacred out in the desert, the desert mothers, Moses, Jesus, and so forth. Is it close to Marfa, Texas? It is close to Marfa. Marfa is probably the last big town other than Alpine, Texas, um, about uh, an hour, I'd say, from this area I'm talking about, Terlingua. So, the, Terling- you know, they have a lot of controversy over the Marfa lights. There's yes, yes. that happen out there. No one knows how I've they been happen. there. Yes, it's a whole pull-off off the highway there, I'm sure you know about, and people will just in the evenings go there and see if they can see the light sometimes they can sometimes they can it's a beautiful mystical landscape looking to the uh i believe it's the south from the highway there how how does your book differ from other books on shamanism there's a lot of books out there written about shamanism so how is yours different yeah thank you um let me think about that for a moment so there Many people, as you know, and your listeners, doing shamanic practice, and of course will will depend on the individual and what part of it they're drawn to. There are people who are primarily drawn to ceremony, right? Like Sandra Ingerman, my second teacher, beloved teacher of shamanism, and she loves ceremony. So every time she gets people together, there's going to be drumming and dancing and the sage and movement and so forth. They're calling in the spirits. There are more esoteric versions of shamanism, like my first teacher, Michael Smith, who's, oh my gosh, can speak and lose me quickly, talking about the fractile learn of the universe and the quantum consciousness and so forth. My, I'm kind of a journeyman. I'm a pretty down-to-earth guy. My father was, was uh, in the lumber business, his family. My mother was a nurse. And, um, and I, I am kind of a real here-and-now sort of person. So the work I do is not esoteric, it doesn't feel like to me, and it's, it's not particularly ceremonial. It's more like a one-on-one interaction with people to help them, to help them with something actually going on in their life as opposed to speculating at length about past lives or lost cities or future lives and so forth. All that's important, and all that is part of the web of energy. But I got people sitting in front of me, say, whose husband just left them or just had a baby die or is losing their home. And so I have to be useful to them. And this comes out of my own background in 20 years of of, uh, chaplaincy work and pastoral counseling. 
So I try to help people get in touch as quickly as we can with their own sacred center to get clear on their heart. Some people know what I'm talking about, and it goes well. Other people have no idea what I'm talking about when I'm talking about their center, their heart, their soul. And so we slow down and help people get clear on that and then help them uh, figure out, to use a shamanic code word, their medicine. You know, like what is it that's their particular blessing, their particular gift in this world? And to the extent they can start aligning their external life to their authentic core, bringing that out of the closet, so to speak, all the problems, all the real-life problems that are around us, they, they lose their power. They lose their energy as, the, um, as being connected with the, the soul strengthens. And it's not that those things magically go away, but it's just like they're not as important. They're not as controlling. They're not, they don't feel as deadly or as frightening. So I would say my contribution is a very kind of um, practical um, bridging between some of these ancient traditions and the modern world. The book I wrote, The Lost Art of Heart Navigation, is very much written for a general audience. It's written for my students. It's written for my clients. It's written for anyone who might be curious about what shamanism is, and then particularly the, the work that I do with fire talks and so forth. The subtitle of my first self-published version was uh, a field manual, a field manual akin to the military field manuals that soldiers would carry in the field. You know, like how do you fix your Jeep axle if it breaks? You know, <laughs> not about military theory. It's about what do you do out there in the real world when things go wrong? and how you're going to keep moving forward. So my book is intended to be very practical and help people learn how to journey, for example, learn how to get to their the so-called heart. And most important, deal with the so-called demons, the subconscious, the unconscious barriers that we have in ourselves to, to being happy, to moving forward. In your book, you speak about psycho-shamanism, the hybrid psycho-shamanism. What do you mean by that? That, again, I will attribute to my first teacher, C. Michael Smith, and that's a, uh attempt to give a, to give a phrase to this hybrid. Um, on the one hand, as I've been talking about, um, I'm very much drawing from the wisdom, the traditional medicine, so to speak, of indigenous people around the world as best as I can with integrity, meaning the nature-based earth-honoring spirituality of the people that believe everything has a spirit, not just humans, trees, rivers, the moon, and so forth. That's the traditional shamanic part. And learning to you know, interact directly with the spirits in our lives and the spirits of everything around us. The psycho part refers to more of the contemporary, what you might refer to as uh, social sciences, anthropology, history, psychology, um, and, and drawing on those insights because there's value there. We've learned things from science about what works and what doesn't work in a therapeutic setting. So um, <laughs> if you were to watch one of my sessions as a fly on the wall, 
partly you would see me burning some incense and doing a prayer and inviting in our ancestors as they begin the session, some silence to get grounded, thanks to the, to the Earth Mother. And at the same time, you would see what looks like um, some uh, traditional behavioral cognitive approaches or, or helping people get clear on the emotional side of things or looking uh, a, a glance into a person's family system and all these kinds of things that come from a more contemporary, I'd say, psychotherapeutic model of helping people. So it's flexible. What seems to fit best for the individual is, is what I draw on. So how does your book and work relate to the Native American cultures? This is a really, really important question. Um, as, as some of your listeners know, there's a lot of, of um, uh, tension and even um, uh, bad feelings about non-Native people uh, doing what we refer to as shamanic work. And there's good reason for that, you know, not to even mention the history of genocide and all that has been done to indigenous people by our colonial cultures coming into these countries around the world. So there's a legacy of pain that pre-exists this modern attempt to retrieve these traditions. And some non-Indians have not done that well. They've not done that respectfully. And everybody knows the story of the guy, I forget what state out west, who had the sweat lodge ceremony. He was charging hundreds of dollars per person, wouldn't let people out of the lodge, and one or two people, I believe, died in there. Big lawsuit. And, and you know, the guy went to jail. And that's like a worst-case example of um, exploiting uh, these traditions that were not meant to be done for money. And, you know, you go to the New Age conferences, you go to some shamanic conferences, and people are selling their dream catchers, and they're selling the sacred pipes, and they're selling this regalia or the pseudo-Native American beadwork. And it just, you know, it, it breaks my heart because, you know, on the one hand, we came into this continent and told the people that they were too primitive, too unreligious, too uneducated to be worth considering and move them off the land. And now we're saying, eh, they have this great spirituality. Check it out. And my great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess. And isn't that cool? And, and to a Native person, that is extremely painful. So that's the background. So I'm big on telling people at the very beginning of my book, anything I teach, anything I say here on the radio, that we're not, I'm not playing Indian. I don't have to. People don't have to do that to benefit from this work because we all come from indigenous people somewhere, even though we may know nothing about it. For example, my own ancestors were from Central Europe, the Celtic people. And many of the traditions, the sacred traditions of the Celtic people, have very similar spiritual practices, earth-honoring spirituality to, say, Native American or aboriginals and so on, the Sami people of, say, Scandinavia. So you don't have to play Indian. You don't have to try to find a Cherokee princess in your lineage in order to have um, the responsibility to the earth, like we all do, but also the ability to draw upon the wisdom of our ancestors all the way back. The catch is that most of us Europeans know nothing about our indigenous ancestors, and all we have to go on are the very few surviving cultures, for example, the Lakota people in South Dakota. And that's a terrific burden to place on those surviving cultures. They're already wounded because of what happened. And we go in there, and we want to learn everything we can. Here's a quick joke that will explain this. So I was on Pine Ridge, and they have a beautiful little bookstore. 
And there's a book I, I saw called Lakota Joke Book. And I thought, I wonder what this is. And I remember one of the jokes. These are written from a native perspective, okay? And the joke was, what is the definition of a Lakota family? And the answer is a father, a mother, a few children, and an anthropologist. Yeah? <laughs> and, you know, that's their experience of, of you know, there's – you know, non-Indian anthropologists crawling all over everything, writing books about the people, disappearing, sharing none of the proceeds or royalties from their books with the people they interviewed and so on. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, Lavendar, but I hope it, uh, it's a yeah, very yeah. important subject. I hope that was useful. I'm curious to know, have you been to Australia to see the Aborigines? Have you been there? No, and I would love to. One of my colleagues from my uh, shamanic teacher training was Sandra Ingerman. Her name is Bev, and she is from Australia, and I have a standing invitation to go visit her, and I want to do that. Because we've had several people come on our show that are talking about some of the discoveries that they're making about uh, the sky-to-earth people and a lot of ET activity and, and, and how that that Australia is really uh, one of the last frontiers of, of, of spiritual galactic um, work that's, that's coming down on the planet. So I was just curious to know if you, if you had been. Uh, that's a beautiful question. I've, I've met several people and talked to them about the, the indigenous people there. One of the beautiful things, like in North America, the aboriginals in, in uh, Australia, of course, suffered from uh, racism and uh, and being forced off their land, but there wasn't the, quite the same extent of the genocide. So the, the core of their culture, family systems, and this is my understanding, uh, it was relatively intact. So it's a beautiful place upon invitation to be able to experience, if there's an invitation there, um, authentic and relatively untraumatized um, indigenous culture. So thank you for, for raising that. Yeah, I really would like to to see you go there. I have a feeling that when you go there, some really powerful things will be happening. Thank you, thank you for that nudge. I will tell my wife we're going to uh, Australia next year because of <laughs> because of that. Thank you. When your your presence walks on the land, something happens. I think they're waiting for you to come. Mm, thank you, thank you for that. So you've named your practice the Great Plains Shamanistic Programs. How did you come up with that name? Yeah, I, I can't explain this logically to anyone, but for some reason, whenever I head west, uh, you know, and across the Mississippi River and then later the Missouri River, my heart just opens up uh, a, a, along with the landscape. It's, it's really stunning for me driving. I live close to Chicago. I have to drive through Chicago to head west. And it's stunning going from that highly dense, you know, skyscraper, urban environment out west and as the miles go by and the buildings turn into traditional farms but then the further west the farms start to peter out because there's less rain and then you get sort of the high plains open areas with fewer fences and fewer rectangular you know monoculture crops until you're far out there like in the dakotas and wyoming and so forth and it, it you know the the nature sky horizon landscape completely dominates the visual field, and it's the complete opposite of what I experience, of course, in the inner city or in a bigger city or even uh, more rural areas here in Indiana. And so for me, the Great Plains, I think, is like a big metaphor 
for the soul, at least personally. And I know for a lot of people, it's just flyover country. Like, why would you go out there? <laughs> but for me, it's everything. It's it's the openness that allows me uh, the absence of distractions to really listen to the heart and, and do some of this kind of work personally and with others that I'm talking about on the phone. Have you spent any time at the Tetons in Wyoming? No, I haven't yet. That's on my bucket list. I was just out in um, Glacier National Park with my wife and two adult daughters for a family vacation. And, oh, it was hard to come back. There was just so much beauty, and I've heard about the Tetons. It sounds gorgeous. Oh, the Tetons are awesome. Yeah. So tell us more about your programs, and do you have a website that people can go on and and, uh, and look at your work? Give us your website. Thank you. My website is, uh, as we were just saying, Great Plains. It's Great Plains Guide. Dot net, greatplainsguide.net. And um, my programs, I've talked about Fire Talks a bit, which is my shamanic counseling work, which, by the way, I can do by telephone and um, over the Internet, Zoom, Skype, and so forth. Um, Zoom, wonderful. I, I love oh, Skype because Zoom's so great. <laughs> exactly. One of my friends converted me to, uh, to Zoom from Skype, so I'm a big Skype fan. I do educational programs. The big thing coming up that I'm most excited about um, is this what I call the Desert Solitaire Program. We talked about Terlingua, Texas, and it's going to be in March, last week in March. Um, and it's basically uh, people have two options. We spend a week in the desert in this beautiful, rustic, uh, off-grid facility that's completely solar-powered and go through an intensive week of this work I'm talking about, of helping people you know, first break the distraction, distracting trance of their busy lives and get connected to the desert out there and the spirits and the wind and the moon and the stars. And then we start slowly and and gently going through inventories of the heart and these practices, some traditional practices and some of the so-called psycho-shamanic practices. So that's coming up, this desert solitaire program. I also offer at the same week a more traditional vision quest that people can go out on their own in the desert safely for two days and nights of fasting and prayer, and I support people in all that. All that information is on my website. About how many people go with you at a time? What's your largest group? I limit it to about 12 because that's about all I want to do in terms of safety and keeping an eye on people and uh, intimacy, being able to have the time that I need with people. So um, it's not a huge group. Um, just That seems to just be a lovely number. So Yeah, that sounds good. I hope that a lot of our listeners uh, check you out, and, and if they have the urge to go, that they'll They'll contact you and and have this great experience in Texas. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for asking about that. So I'm looking at the time, so I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Ariel, who has the switchboard. All right. So maybe there's maybe some people that want to call in and ask you some questions or have a comment. Okay. It's been my pleasure talking with you, Jeff, and please keep us in mind for new things that are happening in your world. If you ever want to come on and announce something special, let us know, even if it's just for five minutes. We'll Thank be happy you, to announce anything that you have going on. Okay? Thank you very much for the privilege of being on your show. Okay. Thank you, honey. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Back okay. to you, Ariel. Okay. Well, um, this is just fascinating, and I know that our audience is very much in tune with um, what you're saying and, and understanding. Um and we have already a caller that has a question for you. So um, before I before I pick up, um, his name is Matthew. And before I pick up for your 
microphone, Matthew, I want to just let everyone know that if you have a question or a comment for Jeff, if you're already on the switchboard, then you just need to press 1 to flag us that you, you want to come on the air. If you are listening on your computer, then you just pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292, and then once you're in, press 1, and uh, we'll get you on the air with Jeff. So right now I'm going to pick up um, for Matthew, who has a question about finding a mentor. Okay, Matthew, you are on the air with Jeff Nix, so go ahead with your question. Hey, Jeff. Hi, um, Matthew. I actually um, I actually wasn't even sure if I was going to call in tonight, but then you told the story about the transgender yes. fellow that met the snake. Yes. Which is funny because I'm, I myself am a transgender guy. Yes. And on my last journey, I actually rode a snake. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, so my question is, um, how would I go about finding a mentor to help me better my practice? Because I just started all of this, like, maybe three months ago. I have two answers, and thank you for the beautiful question. One, there's a, a wonderful resource online um, created by my teacher, um, Sandra Ingerman, and it's called it, it's at shamanicteachers.com. That's the URL, shamanicteachers.com, and it's a comprehensive list of all the sort of vetted uh, shamanic he- practitioners, healers, teachers that she has taught. And she's very picky. <laughs> if people aren't measuring up and they're on the list, they'll get kicked off the list. So you can trust that anybody you find on there, they're all listed by state, region, with emails and contact numbers and programs. So that's that's a big one. And, and just a word, I'm not... Um, picking on anybody else it's just it's it's a great resource and there are many i'm sure other resources out there but it's one of the biggest and most uh reliable ones that i know secondly if you email me offline i would be happy to try to put you in touch uh with this gentleman that i mentioned who met the snake in his own circle he is a shamanic practitioner and uh if you were interested in that so just putting that out there for you Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, where can I find your email address? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mention that on air. It's um, uh, greatplainsguide at gmail.com. Greatplainsguide at gmail. Just shoot me an email, and I'm happy to uh, see how I can be of help. Okay, perfect. That answers my question. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for calling in, and blessings on your journey. Thank you. Thanks for calling in, Matthew. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, um, if anyone else has a comment or question, um, now's the time to call in or (laughs) press 1 if you're already on the switchboard. Um, But while we are um, waiting for that, um, I was kind of wanted to get like really, really basic. Like I said, most of our audience is very well informed and they they know what shamanism is. But if there are some newer listeners that don't understand, um, could you just give us a, a basic definition of um, you know, what shamanism is and um, the difference between a, a, a practitioner and um, a, a shamanic journeyer? Yes, 
Yes. Thank you for that question. I apologize for I should have addressed that earlier on. Uh, well, most people, most like I said, most of our listeners already know what you're talking about, but maybe not everybody. So even this has some controversy around it, at least in academic circles, because there's no such thing as shamanism per se. It's a made-up word to try to describe a whole uh, bundle of attributes that are common among indigenous cultures, regardless of where they are. For example, the belief that every living thing has a spirit and that you can connect with that, the importance of nature in our spiritual lives, the importance of ceremony, the importance of connecting with one's ancestors, and so forth. Uh, anthropologist Michael Harner described uh, shamanism as a bundle of sticks that are common among different cultures. There are vast differences, as you can imagine, between an African healer and someone in uh, the Arctic, right, who's living mm-hmm. on an ice floe. That's, but there are common things, nonetheless, between the spiritual beliefs and practices and the relationship with animals. So shamanism is just a code word or a phrase to try to describe the spiritual um, common ground among uh, indigenous cultures worldwide. So your question about uh, terminology in terms of practitioner and shamanic journeyer, um, I don't call myself a shaman. That's a little presumptuous. It would be like a Jewish person deciding they were a rabbi and calling themselves a rabbi, you know. I mean, they could do that, but rabbi means the community has decided that you are a, a wonderful teacher. And so it's not a self-designated title. So nowhere in my materials or in my programs do I call myself a shaman. The, I, we fudge a little bit, and the politically correct term is shamanic practitioner. So in other words, I can say I'm doing shamanic practices, and that way I don't you know, look like a self-anointed um, holy man, which is ridiculous, right. as my, my wife would tell you. And a shamanic journeyer, that's, I mean, anyone, anyone can do a shamanic journey. So um, I know people who do call themselves shamans. And, you know, at this uh, conference I mentioned in the Amazon was a shamanic, uh, uh, Amazonian shaman conference. And there were a number of people there out of the jungle and down from the mountains who were very clearly considered shamanic healers, even though they didn't use that actual word. So does that answer your question a bit? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I'm I'm sure it, it helps a lot of people that maybe are new to the to the radio show or or to just waking up and um just give some some background. Yes. We've actually yes. had another caller come uh, ready okay. to talk to you and um oh, you're going to be talking to Lynn who Lynn. is uh, one of Lynn is one of our favorite people. Come on. Oh, hey, good. Lynn, been how on are you? <laughs> yes. Hi Lynn. Hi, how are you? Hi, We're Lynn. doing great. Hi. Go ahead so with your question. I ha- thank you so much, and um, I I'm so grateful for all of us that are really protecting this earth because it's it's so tragic. <laughs> my it it hurts my heart. So thank you for what you're doing. Um, you mentioned your Celtic. Um, roots? Yes. Are you familiar with Mary Reynolds and her work? I am not familiar with Mary Reynolds. And, you know, my whole uh, uh, education and apprenticeships have been primarily in North America with people who are primarily uh, rooted in native 
North and South American shamanism. So this is a huge area for me personally to learn more about and explore. What can you tell me about Mary? Well, Mary Reynolds um, is, is, in my opinion, truly one of the – she would not ever call herself a shaman or a shamanic healer, but she is an earth healer. Okay. And in, um, when she was 26 years old, she won first prize uh, in the Chelsea Garden Show in London. The most prestigious show in the world. Wow! And and she had never entered. She did it all on really intention and faith. Hmm. And um, a magical situation. And she has now gone on to realize that um, you know she was designing gardens for people and doing that kind of thing. And she said she couldn't do that anymore because the earth was crying. For healers of the earth, not yes. not someone to design a garden that nobody cares about, but right. they hire the guy to 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 write to hedge the grass and it looks perfect, but it doesn't mean anything. Yes, yes, yes. So that. I think you would, tr- and she. Oh well, and the big connector is she lives in Ireland. She's okay. from Ireland. Okay. Okay, and so she did an Irish Celtic. Uh, exhibit for her um, uh, entrance into the Chelsea Garden Show. Uh Oh, interesting. Uh, I know. And that's how she won it with that. That's exactly. And and she had no money. She did not have the entry fee. It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable story of, you know, just intention and the law of attraction. And she, yes. you know, when she first decided to do it, she just, she wrote a note that said, I'm so grateful for winning the Chelsea Garden Show. She was 26 years old. Wow. Fantastic. And uh, Prince Charles had his exhibit right next to hers. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, my. And, and so it, I, I think you would love it. Thank you for that for that opening and that connection. I'm gonna when I get down with the show here, I'm gonna go home and look up Mary Reynolds. Well, you will find a, there's a lot a, of information. Does she have a website? I'm sure. Go ahead. Do you know? I'm I'm not even sure that she has a website, but she's on YouTube. She's um, oh okay. If if you if you do Netflix, she has yes. um. A, there's a well. The movie of her story is called Dare to Be Wild. Oh, excellent! I am a big Netflix person. Okay. Well, the, you, you and your family will so totally enjoy this. Um, it, 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 it's uh, her her quest has been really stunning, and some of her YouTube talks just make you understand the work that you're doing, the work that anybody is doing to to heal this planet mm-hmm. we have been so abusive it, yeah. Uh, yeah. so thank you thank you yes. for what you do thank you lynn thank you for calling in and for that lovely um connection for me with mary reynolds i appreciate that yes and and ireland yeah you know, that's <clears throat> it's great that there are people that are actually doing the work to help heal the earth and uh, the more the better <laughs> i got a quick story if, if we've got time about mm. that um when i did go to the amazon and 
tested my <laughs> sort of required uh, experiences with ayahuasca and ceremony. One of the more profound uh, journeys I had with that in the jungle was at the end of this long um, process of working with with the plant medicine, a very, very powerful but simple image came to me. And I had taken to the ceremony a, a very specific question of something uh, for the spirit, the queen spirit of the jungle. And my question was something like, you know, there's so much that needs to be done, as your caller was just saying. We've, we've wounded the earth so badly. It's overwhelming. And, and like, where do we start or how, you know, what, what programs are needed? You know, what legislation? What? And so this is what I took to the jungle. And what came back to me as the sun was setting, this beautiful magenta sun through low through the jungle and the monkeys are jumping overhead and the parrots are flying overhead and I was kind of unsteady in my feet after this this medicine I was working with and uh the sun kind of was right in my eyes and the the, the two word phrase um teach this teach this and, and and the powerful sense I had was that I was looking at paradise that this is paradise the jungle but not just the jungle where wherever we are and and the fact that the river flowing by your mall might be polluted doesn't mean the river is not sacred. The river is pure. It just carries our pollution, our sins, and so on and so on. The earth underneath our feet, the air that we breathe. You know, we get so alienated from the nature around us because a lot of it isn't very nice anymore. You know, what's so sacred about that? But the elements are still pure and sacred. So the big teaching to me was <laughs> help people remember that we're in paradise and that the land we stand on, whether it's South Bend, Indiana, or Connecticut, or Egypt, is sacred ground. You don't have to be on a mountaintop somewhere with a guru. The ground underneath the asphalt at your mall is sacred ground. Here in northern Indiana, this all used to be tall grass prairie teeming with buffalo and elk, believe it or not, and coyotes and birds and fish and everything. And now, you know, it's pavement and buildings and so forth. But So it's partly just about remembering the potentiality and the life that's still there. And I'm just grateful for that. And your caller just reminded me of that with her story about Mary Reynolds. Mm-hmm. So, Well, that's, that's wonderful. That's a really good point. And um, Lynn, I know you're still, your mic is still on, so I just oh. wanted to say thank you again for calling in. And um, well, thank you, and thank you for that story because what what a lesson for all of us. Yes, yes, and you know what came to me just to follow up is, is it wasn't a sense that I need to go march with a sign in front of a coal-fired power plant or something. It's almost like. That's that's not the main thing. What we need to do is just just help people remember that they're in paradise, you know, the sacredness of the earth, as opposed to, I would say, an environmental agenda, right, which gets real political yes. real fast. We all know that. Yeah. But everybody loves nature, right? Like, who doesn't, when you ask them <laughs> what they'd like to be doing, is something involving being on the seashore or up in the mountains, it's it's instinctual. So that I, just maybe a gentle um, suggestion to your listeners, only because it came to me, was if you really want to save the earth, you know, help people however you can with your particular gills, uh, skills and interests, see paradise 
again in the most ordinary places around them, especially children, because they're going to be <laughs> taken over for us. So right. hope that's helpful. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so Thank much for calling, Ellen. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Okay. Um, we have one more caller here, and I think this is Joanne. Did I say your name right? Is this Joanne? Yes, it is. Okay. I thought I, thought I recognized your name and number here, so well, thanks for calling in, Joanne. You are on the air with Jeff. Hi, Joanne. Hello, Jeff. I, since I live in New Mexico, I'm very interested in the Terlingua. Wonderful. Uh, I would bet. love to have you. All the information is on my website. So, Oh, it um, is. Absolutely. I would love to have you elaborate a little bit, um, like um, do we need camping equipment or uh, do you stay in uh, buildings? Thank you for asking. So I've rented a 300-acre desert ranch, which out there there's no fences. So even though 300 acres is plenty big, it's more like a 1,000 of adjacent neighbors that all cooperate. And there's a very simple rustic. I hesitate. It's not exactly a house, as you would think of a house. It's a big structure. It's got a, a few bedrooms and a bathroom. And so it's basically a giant Quonset hut two stories, with a kitchen, solar panels, and so on. So there are two programs that I run simultaneously. We all go out there together. Um, some of the people, uh, the, the program that sort of stays uh, there the whole time, I'm calling the School of the Wind. And it's this immersion in these practices, these traditions, with a whole lot of time and attention on the individual's own lives and what they're struggling with and helping them sort of transform them and learn some of these uh, shamanic traditions like shamanic journeying and how to connect with the spirit of the desert or the moon or the wind and not just in sort of a unicorns and rainbows uh, way of speculative, but use that relationship. That's what shamans do is learn, ask questions, get information back. So that's one part of this program so for people who are, maybe don't quite feel the call to head out into the desert for a couple of days themselves. The other part is a more traditional vision quest that I mentioned earlier. We all start together. We spend several days together out in the desert getting to know the wildlife, the land. We walk the land, fire ceremonies in the evenings meals together. But then in the middle of the week, people who are interested in doing a more traditional vision quest will head out into the desert on their own um, with very light gear. And we talk about all this. There's much, much preparation that I help people with. So it's not like we just say, good luck. <laughs> and people head out <laughs> with a very clear intention for themselves and their lives, a prayer intention for spirit, spirit of the desert, and go out and create a circle uh, if they want, can do it in a traditional way with tobacco prayer ties. But that's not as important as just having a clear intention. And sit down on the ground and don't move, more or less, for two days and nights. And we encourage people to not eat or drink. And that freaks out some people, but you can go a long, long time without food, like 30 days, and you can go as good seven days without water before your body's in serious shape. So everybody takes water out with them, but we encourage them not to drink it. And two days and nights for a healthy person is no problem. Yeah, you get thirsty, and yes, you get hungry, but it comes and goes. 
And it's the technology. It's, it's the amazing insight of indigenous people that if you sort of starve the mind, so to speak, the mind starts to slow down. Like we can't get our minds to slow down a lot of the times. But if you don't eat and drink for a couple of days, your mind's going to slow down. And then what happens is you start to get in tune with the cycles and the movements of nature around you, the movement of the, of the moon overhead throughout the night, the patterns of the wind come and going across the desert, the movements of tiny insects, whatever is going on. And then the heart opens and the magic happens. So I just say that because what I found is a lot of people are interested in doing a quest and then their husband or their mother or their best friend talks them out of it. Are you crazy? It's dangerous. What about bears? You know, <laughs> and so I put a lot more effort than I thought I had to into helping people feel safe. And then there's a safety check each day. We go out and we make visual contact with each of the questers. And we have prearranged signals like a thumbs up or a thumbs down to make sure everybody's doing okay. We bring water if they need it. If they don't, we move on. So it's not a time for social chit-chat, but uh, everyone is closely monitored even though it's a very solitary, powerful experience. So people come back from that then after their time out there. We reconnect as a group around the fire. Process, always amazing deep experiences out there in nature. I mentioned the one with the snake, with the individual, another program. And so that's, that's what's going on in Terlingua. If, if you're interested, it's, I don't have the exact dates, it's, but it's the last uh, week in um, March, this, this upcoming spring, 2019. And full information, fees, travel, all that stuff is listed on my website, and I'm happy to talk to people on the phone. So is that helpful, Joanne? It is, and I have one other question. Yes. You have to sit that whole time. You cannot lay down. Oh, you can lay down. You can lay down. Oh, okay. the, the, the point is it's not a, a, a camping trip, uh, marshmallows and weenies roast around a fire out in the desert by yourself. It's a spiritual ceremony. So people do not take tents, but they take a sleeping bag. Um, March in Terlingua, Texas, is the driest season of the year in a very dry climate. The average rainfall is like 0.03 inches <laughs> annually in March. So it's not like you're going to get rained on. Um, it can get chilly in the desert in the evening. That's why I pick March. It's the optimal time to be in the desert because daytime temps are not ridiculous. It's in the mid-80s that time of year is a high. And in the evening it can get quite chilly, upper 50s maybe. So people all bring a good sleeping bag. But uh, I send people a very complete gear, packing list, and little videos that I've created ahead of time to watch, to learn about the Vision Quest process, what it's like, and so on. So by the time people get out there, they know exactly how it works. And then we give them additional time to actually walk the land and get to know the turf. So they're even more comfortable and, uh, in selecting their place. Well, I thank you very much. It sounds very interesting, and I'm seriously thinking about it. I will go on your website, which was what great was it? Great Plains. Would you repeat it again yes. for me, please? It's, it's three words all mushed together. Great okay. Plains Guide, like a wilderness okay. guide. Greatplainsguide.net or .com. Either one works. And you'll just see a tab that says uh, Texas. It says Desert Solitaire. That's what I'm calling the whole program out there. Desert Solitaire. All right. And bring a friend Thank if you. it looks intriguing. Tell your friends. We'd love to have you. Last year we had a, several women who brought friends with them, 
and they still did the solo quest alone, but um, it was wonderful having their buddies with them and the rest of the program. Oh, well, yes, I, I do have friends. We just came back from Gathering of Healers up in Window Rock, Arizona. Oh, well, bring one fabulous. of them or two or three. <laughs> so, we'll take good okay. care of them, I promise. All right, thank you very much. You're welcome. And by the way, Joanne, there's a little video on my website about the Vision Quest that I made with actual footage from programs I've done I think will also help you and anyone who's interested. Oh, good. Looking Excellent. forward to looking into it. Thank you. Thank you again, Jeff. Bye. Bye-bye, Joanne. Thanks for calling. Well, I think that was our last caller. All right. That's nice. And um, if, if there's anything that you would like to, to say in, in conclusion and wrapping it up here, um, now's your chance. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, this has just been great. I just want to send a huge thank you for uh, your interest in having me on. Um, I didn't say much about the book. My publisher would say, Jeff, talk about the book. So uh, the title of my book about all this stuff I've been talking about and Fire Talks is The Lost Art of Heart Navigation, and the subtitle is A Modern Shaman's Field Manual. And it's available on Amazon. The publisher is Bear and Company, wonderful publisher. Um, and it basically contains the core practices that I use in my Fire Talk work. So if people are curious about this, not sure they want to try it out, they don't have to guess. It's all in the book. And, you know, nowadays you can download an e-version of the book and uh, have it instantly. So all that's on Amazon.com, The Lost Art of Heart Navigation. And other than that, um, it's been a delight to be on the show. would love to have some of your listeners for our Texas program next March. Happy to talk to them if they're interested. Well, sure, and just and, and be sure to ask. I'm sure you already do, but ask people how they heard about um, yes. your adventure, and yes. uh, you very well may hear some people who say they heard you on Starseed Radio Academy. That'd be wonderful. Thank you for yeah. giving me access to all your yeah. listeners. Yeah. Well, we do have a wonderful audience. They're awake. They're very spiritual. They are on an upward spiral and always wanting to learn more and more. So. I'm sure that this will be well-received. Me too. Thank you. So um, I thank you so much for sharing your time, your knowledge, and all of the dedication that it has taken you throughout your journey to be where and who you are now. Well, thank you so much. It's a real blessing to do something like this. It feels like uh, affirmation that all those changes, you know, at the time going through them doesn't feel all that fun sometimes and there's a lot of uncertainty. So this is a wonderful blessing and affirmation that indeed I'm on my own heart path still. So thank you. And we're glad that you are. But you've got a very a very um, gracious um, and loving, compassionate energy about you that I'm mm. sure is palpable to the people listening. And that uh, it, it just marks your your authenticity and, and sincerity. Thank you. I uh, I know to thank my ancestors for that, my mother and my father and my lineage. So I'm, it's in me, and uh, it's, it's not me. It's from my lineage. So thank you for seeing that. Mm-hmm. Well, you are so welcome, Jeff. And remember, if, if you uh, if you ever have an announcement to make uh, when you finish your uh, your companion novel to this book, let us yes. know. And you come Thank on back you. and and give us an update. Thank you. Uh, that's a wonderful opportunity. I'm sure I will take you up on it. Thank you. Yeah, good. 
Good. Yeah, just uh, make sure you email Lavendar because she handles all that. Okay, that's good to know. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, everyone. We've been listening to Jeff Nixa, his book, The Lost Art of Heart Navigation, the uh, Modern Shaman's Field Manual. Make sure you look it up on Amazon, and the website is greatplainsguide.net and also urban-shamanism.org where you can read his blogs. So from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening and sharing your time with us, and we will be back next week. Until then, you take care and remember to find gratitude in every day. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 